You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, and on today's episode, I'll be talking to Bruce Daisley, ex-chief of Twitter Europe, now host of the business podcast Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and author of The Joy of Work. We'll be discussing the future of the post-pandemic workplace and the impact new ways of working can have on our health and happiness. And stick around to the end for our next big opportunity feature, where we highlight a vital consumer need or challenge that's yet to be solved. But first, we kick off with the innovation of the week, where we showcase the one big new innovation you need to know about right now. This week, we take a look at some of the work-related innovations that came out of this year's Consumer Electronics Show, which took place in Las Vegas last month. I spoke about this with Estella Shardlow, Stylus's Senior Editor of Consumer Lifestyle and Technology. So Estella, even though offices are beginning to reopen around the world as the pandemic eases, there's no doubt that hybrid working is here to stay. What sort of new solutions did you see at CES aimed at facilitating and enhancing hybrid and remote work culture? Well, one thing I think we can all agree on is that good audio quality, especially on Zoom calls and the like, is becoming ever more crucial. In fact, poor audio quality has been shown to increase anxiety among workers by 29%. That was according to a recent study by Panasonic. So this is a problem now being tackled by an Israeli startup called Novetto. Instead of trying to retool the headphone experience, they've done away with them completely. Their N1 soundbar, which we saw at CES, transmits ultrasound silently through the air from a tabletop device to small areas just outside the user's ears. And this proprietary smart beaming technology combined with face tracking means that the user alone has this immersive listening experience without disturbing their co-workers. So this works in shared spaces as well? Yes, exactly. Um, Novetta says the device can reduce noise pollution in offices by 90%, while also eliminating those pressure headaches a lot of us can get from wearing headphones for too long. Amazing. So um, what else did you see? Alongside the need for better audio, there's this continuing quest, I think, to create more dynamic, multidimensional virtual workspaces. At CES, a startup called Arthur demonstrated a VR platform that allows remote workers to create personalized avatars and customizable virtual workspaces where they can meet up and manage their tasks. That's already being used by the UN, um, UC and Nestle, among others. So obviously we're seeing similar experiences to this being touted by people like Facebook. Do you think it remains to be seen whether people want to interact this way in a work rather than a gaming context? I think there's still a really long way to go for mainstream adoption of this technology. They're very much works in progress and not any anywhere near as satisfying as we're collaborating in a, in a real um, space. But with hybrid working set to become the norm for the majority of companies, companies really do need to have to start, I'm sorry, I'm start that again, <laughs> go a bit muddled. So I think there's still a long way to go for mainstream adoption of this technology. There's still very much works in progress and don't create the same sort of satisfying experience as collaborating in IRL spaces. But with hybrid working set to be the norm for the majority of companies, clearly we're going to have to bridge this physical and digital gap. Right now, though, only 37% of global employees believe their company is succeeding at this. So speaking of bridging gaps, you also saw interesting developments 
that, that are narrowing the gaps between the tech haves and the tech have nots, I believe. Yeah, exactly. And one of the biggest problems with this shift from towards online working and learning is how it can exacerbate socioeconomic inequalities. It's estimated that I think only half the world's population has access to a computer at home still. At CES, I was really struck by a British startup called Pentaform. Their Abacus Basic computer, which is essentially a keyboard with an inbuilt computer that can connect with any screen, turning it into a fully functional office or schooling space. And that costs just $135. The device also has really strong sustainability credentials. They're using recycled plastic for the casing, for example and 75% less energy than standard computers. So that's really one to watch, I think, in terms of closing this digital gap. How can we make our work life more productive, more creative, and above all, better for our overall health and wellness? These are the questions addressed by Bruce Daisley in his business podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and in his recent book, The Joy of Work. I think from a lay perspective, I saw myself as a manager who was creating good culture in the teams that I worked in. And what happened was during my time at Twitter, that initially was the case. And then the culture went spectacularly wrong. And I realized that, you know, in any way that I was sort of thinking that I understood culture, I was kind of guessing it. Well, what you find is there's actually loads written about team culture, team dynamic, how teams operate but just none of it reaches people in jobs. And so it's just this real interesting, it's almost like, you know, we're being studied as like, like animals at a zoo, like animals out in the savannah, but then no one is coming back to the animals on the savannah saying, okay, here's the lessons we've learned so far. What was the timeline? Were you, were you still at Twitter when you wrote the book or had yeah. you, you, so, so did you apply what you sort of learned from writing? Were you able to apply that within Twitter before you left? Yeah, absolutely. And most visibly in the area where we were really struggling with issues of burnout. And the, the big issue of burnout that we had was that people were just overwhelmed. They were often quitting with no job to go to. They felt, you know, they just looked dead behind the eyes. People who we'd hired these sort of sprightly, enthusiastic, people who just emanated this desirable warmth to them and then they were just looking like they were sort of drawn in black and white and so it was just like well man what have we got to do as soon as you've got four thousand people who can put a meeting in your diary and can just spray meetings around you know mandatory must attend you know and this meeting goes in your diary at 4 p.m and what happens is people very quickly find themselves spending 25 hours a week in meetings and then you know the lived experience of that is that you're in 25 hours a week of meetings where people are just box ticking. You know, did you present this to everyone in this team? Yes. Did you present it to everyone in this team? Yes. And so you, your engagement is, is an irrelevant. You're just a, a line on a spreadsheet. But the end result of that is that people who were working through that just feel exhausted. They feel like they've got no control. So we sort of, I, I did a few things trying to encourage people to take breaks, to, to, to reduce the burden of meetings on them, to try and urge managers to reduce the length of meetings and the frequency of meetings. And so things like that, really, to try and set about gradually adapting the, the way that we worked. And that had a good success. But, you know, quite often, one of the biggest determinants of personal well-being, almost without exception, is, is feelings of personal control. You know, when you feel a, a feeling of generally your well-being is higher and really sort of, you know, 
continually proven research on that. And when you've got people who feel no sense of control, that's when they feel overwhelmed, powerless, anxious, stressed. And so it was about trying to achieve that balance, really. So then you, you left Twitter. Is this before the pandemic? Just the, the month before. Right. The month before pandem- pandemic. Then COVID happens and everybody's sort of work-life situation is transformed. The obvious question, I guess, is, you know, were your ideas becoming more implemented as a result of this? And did your thinking change about happier working as a result? Yeah, absolutely. When we looked previously at remote work, the stress levels of people who did remote work were higher than people who worked in offices, generally because the people who worked remotely And this was, I think, World Health Organization research. But the the people who worked remotely generally used to spend a lot of their time worrying that people didn't trust them or their boss didn't think they were getting their job done. Now that was that was changed, that that trust element was changed. And and now we were working from home and and look, you know, I've sort of consulted with about 60 firms in the last 12 months. And I would say. 58 of them have had a relatively good year in terms of sales and performance. And, and so as a consequence, most organizations now are sitting there going, well, yeah, we changed and it, the wheels didn't fall off. It wasn't like a disaster. And so we, we've demonstrated we can work in a different way. And I think that's, that's a fundamental realignment, reappraisal to, to what's, what's happened. And it's sort of played a, a, a huge part in terms of us rethinking you know, my view now is that we're going into a very, very different period of work where there's probably three different clear outcomes of the, the way that work will evolve. And, you know, and actually they're, they're, they're very different. You know, th- those different outcomes will shape work in very different ways. And the interesting thing will be that certainly the best workers will get the opportunity to pick and choose which sort of environment they want to work in. So, you know, this, this societal impact, impact for that. And yet, I, get, I guess those different approaches for me are some firms will try and be traditional. And I think that they will try and ask for probably four days a week in the office or, you know, they will try and sort of assert that. I think we're going to see one version of work, which is one word for it is giggy in sense that, you know, it's got more personal incentives. Maybe you're hired to do a base job, but you're, you received uh, special incentives, rewards for doing things, you're treated as an affiliate rather than an employee. And I think that there will be some firms who say, look, you know, we recognize that in the past, organizations that had good cultures seemed to have higher levels of motivation and higher levels of innovation than, than those firms. But we're going to try and set about doing that in a very different way. So, you know, we want our workers to feel a strong sense of affiliation but also that they feel the autonomy to get their job done in their own way. And that's going to be non-linear. I'm not convinced that that will be in a prescribed way. That might be in the Wednesday plus one mold, or it might be that, you know, that all people, workers see each other one day a week. It might be far more fluid like that, but I think seeing each other will play an important part or being connected to each other will play an important part. And almost certainly there will be a growth of some completely remote jobs, remote only. And I guess, you know, to incentivize them, that might be a little bit more gig economy or just, you know, actually these organizations are very happy not to have a strong sense of affiliation that runs through them, but we'll, but you know, we'll, we'll know that they're employing people on the basis of that complete geographical autonomy, really. Yeah. That's interesting. It's the idea about affiliation. That's 
strikes me as something which would, would appeal to younger generations of, of the workforce. I wonder whether you, you have seen generational differences that have become more pronounced because of the situation with the pandemic, or, or, or is it the case that everybody across the age groups has, has sort of adapted in a fairly similar way? Yeah, um, it, it varies actually. So what you find is that younger people generally exhibit more willingness to go back to the office. The, the older workers get, the more likely they are to want to work fully remotely. I think the really interesting thing about that is that it presents big risks for schisms in organizations. What you generally find is that there's, a, there's been a lot of work done on when identity groups correlate with opinion groups, it's where you get the biggest schisms in society. What you get is you get an identity group and an opinion group, and what you get is mutual suspicion, you know? And so like Brexit would be one example, but if you then layer on, you know, the challenges of Brexit, plus younger people don't own property, young, younger people don't own assets, older people support a different uh, set of policies and appear to have more money. To some extent, you can see that playing out in our workplaces. So you've got an environment where older workers want to work from home and they earn more. Younger workers want to work from the office and earn less. And you can definitely see that smart organizations will be thinking, right, how do we see this off? How do we avoid the conflict that this creates? I don't think it's necessarily easy, but it does, it does really demonstrate that older workers probably need to, to demonstrate that even if they want to work from home, like all of the time, Actually, they need to demonstrate that they're applying a degree of system thinking, you know, they're applying a bit of consideration for the impact they have on others. But really interesting sort of how identity will have an, an impact on how our workplaces evolve, I think. I wonder whether you've just had, had any thought about now that Zoom culture is sort of deeply embedded in what we do. Are, are there ways that you, you, that you work with clients to sort of make things a bit more creative in terms of how collaboration happens a bit more vivacious, a bit more vitality in, in, in the way that you can do that remotely? Yeah. I mean, look, it's difficult because I think that my first instinct is, is broadly the same, that, that creative things are often done best face-to-face, -face, certainly with the generation of people who've learned to do them in that way. It, it is, you know, it, it's, it reflects the complexity of this though, that I saw JJ Abrams, who's the, the Star Wars, Star Trek and, and did Lost. He did an interview where he said, actually, over the course of the pandemic, they were, they were sure that they couldn't do any more writing rooms. They couldn't do any more creative sessions because they had to be done in the room. And he said, actually, we've just learned to do them in a different way. And they've been some of the best writing sessions we've ever done. So I think it re represents the fact that the barrier can be to some extent in our head. However, what I will say is that often the power from a good writing environment, a good creative environment, a good, you know, decision-making environment is reading the, the reticence, the micro reactions, the, the sort of the unspoken things, the fact that, you know, two key people in the corner of the room haven't said anything. And there does seem to be something about doing those things in person seems to be better. Sometimes I call this divergent meetings, di divergent thinking is like where these, these differences of opinion and actually detecting what the best answer is, is to some extent making sure that you've captured all of the, the reticencies, the, the uncertainties, the hesitations. That's an important part of capturing the, the room's collective intelligence to the best effect. And generally, I think what we find is th those things are generally done best when you're in the same room together. But then it sort of begs a question for an organization. 
should they optimize to have some meetings as done remote, you know, like your Monday check-in call, like your, your marketing weekly, you know, you, you, might, you might choose to do them remotely because they're very routine. They're convergent meetings where everyone's going to converge on one version of the, the truth and other meetings where there's going to be a bit of a ding dong. There's going to be a bit of a argy bargy where all, all comers are welcome to try and sort of have their say. And you might want to do those together. And so, you know, it's like, okay, that's a Wednesday meeting. And you know, the other ones are a Monday meeting. And I think organizations that get into a better rhythm of that are potentially going to achieve most from these changes. Now, the next big opportunity. This is where we look at consumer needs and gaps in the market that still need to be addressed by brands, businesses, and startups. I asked Bruce for his thoughts. For me, you know, aviation hasn't improved in, it's actually one of the only technologies that's gone backwards. I think the critical thing probably right now is if we could enable some of the focus on hydrogen technology and some of the focus on some ecological use of resources, you know, it'd be great to see hydrogen powered or ammonium powered, I guess, planes and, and see if there's any sort of these opportunity to do that. So I think, you know, that would be the, the interesting thing for me. I'd love to see technology advancing in that way. I discussed Bruce's comments with Owen Flynn, Stylus's consumer lifestyle researcher. So we're seeing some big shifts towards the usage of sustainable fuel alternatives in the airline industry. Last year, we saw the formation of a new alliance of companies and brands, including Boeing, Deloitte, JP Morgan Chase and Microsoft, to invest in scaling up this up, including bio-based fuels, sunlight and water-derived fuels and hydrogen. Boeing is actually planning to debut its first commercial aircraft capable of running on 100% biofuels in 2030. And Airbus believes that hydrogen is now a viable eco-option for aircraft. They're developing three designs for hydrogen-fueled aircraft, one that uses propellers, one that uses fan engines to power a traditional tube-shaped fuselage, and another blended wing design. The aim is to have these planes ready to fly by 2025. But innovation in the space is happening right now too. KLM has already carried out the world's first passenger flight powered entirely by synthetic kerosene. The experimental fuel, created by Shell, is made from CO2, water, and renewable electricity. So as you can see, lots of positive developments in this space, but obviously lots more work still to be done. And it's something we'll continue to track closely here at Stylist. That's it for this edition of Future Thinking. I hope you enjoyed it and I'd love to hear your feedback. On Twitter, we're at stylus underscore live and I'm at Christian Ward. And on Instagram, you can find us at wearestylus. See you next time. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.